A tourist was visiting a picturesque village somewhere in the Midwest. And sitting near a fence was an old man who looked like he was native to the area. The tourist approached and he somewhat patronizingly asked the old man, were there any great men born in this village? And the old man quickly looked back and responded, nope, only babies. (laughs) A frothy question brought forth a profound answer. There's no such thing as instant greatness. Greatness takes growth and growth takes time. Now, the reason I begin tonight's Bible study with that story is because exactly the opposite of that is what's taking place in our text. Gideon's rise to leadership was not forged through long seasons of training and preparation, but rather by a willing response to an immediate need. The people of God were in trouble. God was willing to deliver. And so he called, Gideon answered, and God raised him up quickly. And it happened quickly. And thus... The flaws and the failures that come with that instant rise are also evident for us to see in his life and in his ministry. Now, chapter 8 is really an epilogue, in a sense, of Gideon's story. The climax was in chapter 7, when God took the 32,000 men that were gathered with Gideon, subtracted it to impossible odds, a number of only 300 And with Gideon and those 300 men, he defeated 120,000 Midianites. A a, a great story, but really the climax of what Gideon did and how God intervened in Jericho-like form there. And so chapter 8 is really the cleanup, then the coronation of Gideon's time ruling over them, and then the conclusion of the matter. And what we find in this chapter, chapter 8, are six events that demonstrate the qualities of Gideon's leadership. Now, before you turn me off because you say, oh, is this a story on leadership, godly leadership? Because I'm not a godly leader, and so this doesn't really apply to me. I can tune out for the next uh, you know, six points or whatever it is. No, don't, don't do that, and here's why. Because leadership qualities come from within. Leadership is not personality. We think, okay, well, if someone's a type A, you know, a go-getter, someone who's a control freak, then that person is going to be the leader in a group or in a situation. Not so with God, maybe in the world, but not with God. It doesn't come because of appointment or election. Well, that person was chosen or they had the best resume and so they were appointed as a leader, not with God. And it isn't a result of gifts. Someone who just has a certain combination of gifts And thus that makes them leadership potential. God doesn't look at it that way. But rather, in God's economy, leadership is the result of character that's been shaped by experience. Thus, it isn't a study on leadership so much that we see as we look at this part of Gideon's life or his example. But rather, it's pertinent to all of us because God is shaping all of us. And he's seeking to form Christ-like character in each of us. And that's going to be the measure of what we ultimately become. And so as we look at Gideon here, and I'll give you somewhat of a spoiler, we're going to see that he pretty much fails. It isn't a good ending 
uh, for Gideon as we see him here in this chapter. But where this ends tonight is that his failure begins to make sense of our trials. Begin to understand why we go through some of the things that we go through as God is seeking to bring us from where we are to what he wants us to be. And so what do we see in Gideon as we look at this chapter? Six observations if you're taking notes. The first is in the first three verses. And we see, first of all, how Gideon deals with criticism. Look with me at chapter 8. Before we read the verses, let me just bring you up to speed, just in case you weren't here last week. The Midianites had taken the children of Israel captive. Israel, the people of God, had become slaves to their enemies. And the people were tired of that burden, that bondage that they were under for those seven years. And they called out to God and asked for deliverance. And so God raised up Gideon and then surrounded him with that army, which was then subtracted to a contingency of just 300. And God used them then to miraculously defeat the army of the Midianites that came against them. Now, as that battle was coming to a close, 15,000 of the enemy, including the princes and the kings of Midian, escaped by foot. And Gideon pursued. At that point, the men of Ephraim, a tribe just south of where Gideon was located, the men of Ephraim joined in the chase, and they actually caught the two princes, Oreb and Zeb, the men of Ephraim, who were not part of the original battle. And it's where they now come to Gideon, these men of Ephraim, and they approach him about a problem that they have, a bone they have to pick with him here in this. Uh, and so we pick up in verse 1. It says, Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, what have I now done in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him was subsided uh, when he said that. Now, when Gideon originally called people around him to fight in the battle, he called men from the tribes of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And if you look up at the screen, you'll see a map, at least you're supposed to, yes, of the, of the region. It's the same map that you saw, you know, that I gave you back when we studied the book of Judges. And if you look at the colors there, you'll see West Manasseh right there in the middle of the land of Israel. Now, to their north, you'll see Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali surrounding Issachar, who isn't mentioned. So Issachar wasn't called uh, there. And, um, you know, the other player that's going to come into uh, this is Gad on the, on the other side of the Jordan there. If you look to your uh, right, you'll see Gad. Now, if you notice where Ephraim is, Ephraim is just to the south of West Manasseh which was where Gideon was from. So West Manasseh is home base. He called the tribes from the north, and Ephraim gets offended because they weren't called to participate. And now they come to Gideon, and they complain about this. And we see that you know, Gideon responds to them with this little parable. He says, look, what you've done, basically, 
is of more prominence or more importance than what I've done. Because you got the princes. Now, what's going on here in this segment? It's, it's almost annoying to me to see this encounter between Gideon and the men of Ephraim. It's just riddled with fleshly annoyances. First of all, you see the men of Ephraim, and they are wrongly offended. Now, they ignore the fact that this incredible feat has just been accomplished in the name of the Lord. The people of God have just been liberated and delivered from their enemies. They should be rejoicing, and they did get to partake in it. But they're not rejoicing. They're upset. They're complaining about the fact that they weren't included. And so what they do is they come to Gideon and they give to him the the byproduct of the judgment of his motives. Well, Gideon, why didn't you call us to the battle? Why is it that you only called the tribes that you called and you left us out? Did you want glory for yourself, Gideon? That you didn't want men from our tribe, the renowned tribe of Ephraim, to be involved in this because it would maybe perhaps rob glory from you? Or perhaps, Gideon, you're seeking preeminence for inferior tribes because the tribes that he called were esteemed as inferior by the rest of the nation, Asher, Naphtali, Zebulun, you know, and Manasseh. They, they weren't prominent tribes in Israel. So were you trying to leave us out because you didn't want us to have the limelight, Gideon? Or perhaps you're trying to quench the skills and the talents of the men of Ephraim and all that we could bring and offer in a situation like this. So they come to him complaining, ignoring the fact that a great victory has just been accomplished. Now you and I, reading this text, we know the real story. This was a God thing. It had nothing to do with what tribes were involved or who Gideon wanted to help. Because even the men that Gideon called, God sent them home. This was God's story. God was going to use Gideon, and he had a 300-strong select group of men that he wanted to use. It was his plan, his program, and it was for his glory. But we see the assumptions of the Ephraimites causing trouble for Gideon in this instance. It's amazing how much damage assumptions can do amongst the people of God. We've talked about that in other studies, and we've all felt what that feels like. And we see it happening here. That's not the only problem with this. The other problem is how Gideon then handles it. How does Gideon handle it? He handles it with flattery instead of with facts. He doesn't answer the question. They said, well, why didn't you ask us to come and help you in this thing? Now, he could have explained it. He could have said, well, God came and spoke to me. And then I called these men. And then God subtracted the army. And God used 300 of us to rout the enemy. He doesn't do that. He simply gives them a quick, quibby, flattering answer to more or less get them out of his face. He missed an opportunity to, first of all, point them to God. To take the attention off of man and to point it to God where it belonged. It robbed them of an opportunity to give God the glory for the victory that was uh, being given to them. An opportunity to unify the tribes rather than divide them. And also an opportunity to win their confidence uh, of Gideon as a spiritual leader. He, He missed the opportunity to do all of those things by flattering. How do we know? Because the result of it is that he shuts them up, but then they go home. They don't join in with him in the battle. He's going to go on and continue to fight. Look at verse 4. 
It says, when Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him, they crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. The men of Ephraim didn't go with Gideon to finish the job. They were offended, they were upset, they wanted in. But now that there was no glory in it for them, they said, we're going home. We're not going to help out from here on out. You take your 300 men, and you go on, and you finish the battle, and then we'll see what you do. Now, here's the amazing thing, is that these men came to Gideon questioning his motives, but they were the ones with the crooked motives, because they wanted glory for themselves, and once it was evident that they weren't going to get any, they went home. They said, we're not going to participate in this thing with you anymore. Ronald Reagan said this. He said, there's no limit to what a man can accomplish if he doesn't care who gets the glory. There's a lot of truth in that. Is that when people live solely for the glory of God, when they serve for the glory of God, when they do what they do because it's going to bring God glory and not self or man or an establishment, great things can be accomplished. But when the motivation is to exalt self or to inflict self into a circumstance or a situation or to receive glory to self, whatever that is, it always hinders what can be done and it pollutes the glory in where it belongs. It ultimately belongs with God. Gideon gets a 5 out of 10, in my estimation, for how he handled this situation as a leader. Now, the reason he doesn't get a 2, because I want to give him a 2 here, but the reason I'm giving him a 5 is because I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that perhaps he knew that the Ephraimites weren't going to help him no matter what. And so he knew that there was work to do, and he put them aside as quickly as he could. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt on that. So Gideon gets a 5 out of 10 for this one. Number two, second observation as we move along, is we see how Gideon treats those around him, those serving with him. Now this is the only one where Gideon gets a straight 10. 10 out of 10. Ten points in ten possible. Notice in verse 4 again. It says that Gideon came to the Jordan. He and the 300 men who were with him, they crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. So Gideon is concerned about the men that are with him. He's not so overly occupied with what he's doing and his thing, but he also takes time to look out uh, for those men that are around him and what their needs are uh, in the whole thing. Not too long ago, you know, we, you guys know that we had our, our fifth child. And anytime that you have a newborn around the house, things are crazy and chaotic and hectic. And the Lord put it in my heart to bless my wife, to just give her a sum of money and some free time to just go do what she wanted and take a break from the chaos of life. Now, she's extremely even keel. She's not a psycho wife, you know, like you hear about some people, you know, that that just they can't handle stress. She's so good at it. But it was just in my heart to bless her in that way. However, being the cheapskate that I am, I began to obey what God put in my heart, and I you know, got the money and put it in my wallet, but then I waited, and I said, you know, let me make sure I'm really hearing from God on this one, you know. 
And so it sat in my wallet for a couple of days, just honestly. And one day I left here, you know, the church in the afternoon. The weather was still, uh, you know, before it turned cold. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go jogging. I'll go to the rail trail and I'll jog before I go home, you know. And I always call first, tell George I'm doing that just to be the courteous husband, you know. And so I go to the, the rail trail, but I, I don't want to take all the stuff in my pocket. So I leave everything in the car. I leave the keys in the car. I leave my wallet in my work pants in the car, you know, and, and I go running, you know, and usually I have nothing of any value that I'm worried about. So I do that and I, and I run. And so I go and I, I get about a mile and a half away from my car. And then this vision comes into my mind of someone opening the door of my car and taking my wallet that had that money that I had set aside for Georgia. And, and I don't know if this ever happens to you, but you're so sure that something just happened, you know. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I, I can't believe I did that. I, and I, so I turned around and I started like almost sprinting back. I'm like, I can't believe I did that. I'm such a moron. And I was so sure that it was gone that I was kicking myself the whole way going, man, I wish I had just given it to her. Oh, Lord, I blew it. Now, oh, I, I blew it. And so sure enough, I get back to the car and everything's right where it's supposed to be. And I said, okay, Lord. So I went home and I said, Georgia, I've got bad news. Someone stole your money. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I gave it to her. But can I tell you, you know, not expecting it, not having anything that she necessarily wanted to do, but to see just how uplifted it was. Just the thoughtfulness of the thing. And I didn't take credit. I said, God put it on my heart. You know I'm way too cheap to ever do anything like this, you know. But just to do that for her and to, to see what, see how it just, it just took a load off her back to just have that blessing. And she was so appreciative. I saw her eyes, you know, fill up with tears and she was just so grateful for that. Such a small and simple thing. Well, here's the point. Do you encourage the people that are around you in life? Listen, husbands, your wives are exhausted. Wives, your husbands are exhausted. We live in a world where people are running crazy. Burning the candle on both ends. It's nuts. And are we looking out for the people that are around us? The people that are serving with us in this life? Our friends, our family, our spouses, our co-workers? We've got to. We've got to. Because it's extremely easy to feel alone in life and for things to get heavy. But life becomes extremely easy when you don't feel alone. And Gideon does well here. He encourages his men. He wants to make provision for them. However, the provision doesn't go exactly as he plans, leading to number three. The third uh, picture here in Gideon's leadership is how Gideon handles opposition. Notice with me in verse 6. It says, And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, for this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel, and he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. So they give denial. They say, we're not giving you nothing. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, when I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor. That's the kings of the Midianites. 
and about 15, uh, and all their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east. For 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Noba and Jagbiha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. And when Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, so he takes them alive, and routed the whole army, so he takes out the rest. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Harry's. And he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and he said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Now, Succoth and Penuel were cities, villages in Israel. If you look again at the map, you'll see, if you look at West Manasseh, right about where Ephraim, the north side of Ephraim is, if you go across, I don't know if you can see it on the map, into the tribe of Gad, the first village that you come to there is Succoth, and the second village that you come to is uh, Penuel. And it's those villages. These are brothers of the Israelites. These are citizens of the nation of Israel that, that, uh, that, that, that he comes to, and he asks them now for this help. Now, they refuse him help. We're not told why. We don't know if it's perhaps they fear democide. Maybe they're afraid that if Gideon is unsuccessful in taking out these kings, that those kings will then come back, find out that they helped Gideon, and that they'll suffer uh, death on behalf of those Midianite kings. It could be that they fear that democide. It could also be opportunism. They may be betting against their own brothers. Well, if you fail and we don't help you, it could be that when Zeba and Zalmunna come back, they'll know that we didn't help you, and we'll have an in with them. We won't suffer the persecution that we've been suffering for all these years. Or it could be indifference. It could just be that they don't care. They, they, they're tired. They've been under the affliction of the Midianites for all this time. They're wearied with their own burdens, and they don't want to be troubled with anybody else's uh, stuff and so they just say no flat out now either way whether it's the fear of democide or opportunism or indifference they're wrong because their brothers need help and they're not willing to help their brothers and so these guys are absolutely wrong however the way that Gideon handles the situation is even worse see though they had the moral obligation to help their brothers they also had the right to say no. They didn't have to do it. They should do it. It was right to do it, but they don't have to do it. Therefore, for Gideon to now say, I'm going to come back and I'm going to teach you a thing or two or avenge myself upon you is wrong. Now, the law of Moses made provision for Gideon to reciprocate with equality. In other words, the law was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In other words, if he felt like he was wronged and he wanted to bring a civil case against them 
he would be entitled to do an equivalent gesture. In other words, perhaps sometime in the future government when they would ask for help, he could say, no. You didn't help us when we needed help. Now we're not going to help you when you need help. He could deny them food. He could deny them military aid. He could have done that according to the law. But not only did he avenge them beyond that, not just withholding resources, but he went way above and beyond. He wounded these people physically. He destroyed the tower in Penuel, which was a significant artifact and monument for the people of God. That's where God met Jacob and changed his name to Israel in Penuel. That's what that tower represented. But then he killed the men of Penuel. So he goes way above and beyond what is his right to do in this thing. Now, not only was this beyond the law and what it provided, but Gideon totally and absolutely missed the heart of God in the matter. See, just a few days before this instance that we're reading about right here, Gideon was hiding from the same Midianites that the men of Succoth and Penuel were. He was hiding, grinding wheat in a wine press in fear that they were going to come and discover him. Gideon himself was skeptical, not of God's messenger, but of God himself. Remember the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and sought to commission him, and Gideon's first response was skepticism. He said, who are you, and why should I listen to you? If God is real, then why are we suffering in this way? And so he was skeptical, and he didn't believe either. He was afflicted. And yet, how did God deal with Gideon's despondency and Gideon's skepticism? With grace. He showed Gideon who he was. He called him. He saved him. He sent him, gave him a commission, And showed them great victory over their enemies, over the Midianites. God showed Gideon great mercy. And now Gideon has the opportunity to do the same thing to these men who deny him. And he doesn't. He shows an attitude of vengefulness and hate. Of disgust because of what these men do to him. They, you know, uh, he afflicts them because of what they did to him. Now Gideon was forgiven but he wouldn't forgive them. What is God's heart in the matter? Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Notice what Jesus said. He said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Let me ask you, church, how do you treat those who burn you? How do you respond when you need help from someone or when for no reason at all someone just does you wrong? How do you act? How do you respond? Is there vengeance or is there mercy? If every one of us are honest with ourselves, we have been forgiven 
for way more than anything that anyone could ever do to inflict harm on us. No matter what it is. No matter what it is that's harmed you or offended you or stumbled you or wounded you or changed the course of your life, no matter what it is, Jesus Christ hung on a cross and died for your sin equally for the sin that was sinned against you. And so therefore, we're called to show mercy and to be people that forgive and not to harbor bitterness and show vengeance for those that do wrong to us. Gideon gets a 1 out of 10 for how he handled those who opposed him. Number four, we see a snapshot of Gideon's willingness to embrace hard things. Back in Judges chapter 8, verse 18. It says, And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. So he asks them basically, What did the men that you killed, you kings of Midian, what did they look like? And he says, They looked like you. So Gideon said, verse 19, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And so he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, and probably laughing, Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their uh, camels' necks. Now, unlike the men of Penuel, whom Gideon had just killed for offending him, these men actually deserved to die. They had afflicted the people of God for a period of seven years. They just admitted to killing Gideon's family, Gideon's brothers. Isn't it amazing that Gideon was more willing to kill men who opposed him politically than he was to kill those who killed his very family members? These men deserve to die, and here Gideon shows reluctance to do it. It's time to execute them, and Gideon, in a sense, kicks the dog. He looks at his youngest son, and he says, Hey, son, you do the hard work. You kill these two kings, these mighty warriors who killed all of your brothers. And here's what he does by doing that. Two problems. First of all, he puts his son in an awkward position. He puts his son in a position to do something that he's not equipped to do, and that Gideon hasn't given him an example of. The other thing, the other problem with this, is that he brings insult upon the Spirit of God. These men, these evil, wicked kings, are less afraid to die than Gideon is afraid to kill them. They laugh at him, essentially. They say, as a man's strength, uh, you know, as a man's strength is, you know, or, as a, for as a man is, so is his strength. And, and they, they mock him. They do despite unto him. And so Gideon doesn't do the thing that he's called to do. What's the application of this? Listen, God didn't call us Christians, us his people, so that we could have an easy life. He called us so that he could strengthen us to do things that are near impossible. Why would the Apostle Paul say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? We have difficult things that we're called to do. What this is like, it would be like for us dads to tell our kids to get control over their passions and over their flesh when we ourselves don't get control over our passions and over our flesh. I live loose. I live carnality. I make excuses for myself. But yet I hold my kids, my children, to a higher standard than I even live by. That's what this is like here. Gideon using his authority as an opportunity to take the easy way. And it's wrong. 
And he ends up having to do it, but not before he brings shame upon himself and upon his son. A high mark of Christ-like character is our willingness to do difficult things, to employ the power that God's Spirit gives to us and do what we're called to do, no matter how difficult the task. Gideon gets a 3 out of 10. We move now from the cleanup of the battle to the coronation of Gideon's rule. And it's number five in your notes. It's how Gideon handles praise and authority. And it's in verse 22. It says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now, If the story ended here, it would be real good for Gideon because, man, that is just an excellent thing to say. He's not willing to be crowned. He points the people right to God. And if this was the end of the story, it would be 10 out of 10 for Gideon. But it's not. Read on. Verse 24. It said, Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you, that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw it into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and his house. Though Gideon didn't want royalty, he did want to be remembered. And so he takes an offering. He has the people. He has their favor and their attention. And so he takes an offering, not to help the cause or to establish the nation and put things back where they're supposed to be, but rather to build a monument in his city as a memorial for what he did. Now, what is the monument? It says it's an ephod. An ephod was a vest that the high priest would wear when he would do his high priestly ministry. In all appearance, it's as though Gideon is saying, we're going to build a monument to the Lord. It's a monument to my saying, don't look to me, but rather look to the Lord. Look to the ephod. Seek God. The problem with this is, first of all, God commanded in the Ten Commandments that they were not to make an image like unto anything. And second of all, they certainly weren't to bow down and worship it. And that's exactly what happened. Gideon makes this ephod, and the people come, and they worship the image, and it brings a snare upon Gideon in uh, his city. And thus, what we see is that the motive of Gideon's erection of this ephod is revealed it was a monument to himself if it was a monument to god at very least he would have set it up in shiloh which was where the tabernacle was which was where the people of god would congregate but it says that he put it in his city in ophrah he wanted to be remembered for what he did and so he puts the focus on himself gideon's has a self problem we're beginning to see it as we move through these verses. We see that Gideon didn't want problems for himself at the beginning of the chapter with the men of Ephraim. Then we saw that he avenged himself cruelly upon the men of uh, Penuel and Succoth. 
And then we saw that he sought to avoid difficulty for himself by wanting his son to kill those two kings. And here we see that he's building a monument for himself, for the nation. And it's coming into focus for us that the primary obstacle of godly character that restricts godly character is self. Self is a dangerous, dangerous, ugly thing. It says it became a snare. Gideon's rule was weakened because the people's attention was turned away from God. When their hearts are inclined towards an idol, the presence of God withdraws. If the strength of Gideon's rule is the presence of God, then by erecting this ephod, he circumvented his own rule, and he, and he did damage to himself. He's inconsistent. He said, look to God, but he lived, look to me. He gets a two out of ten for how he handled this uh, praise and how he handled authority. And then finally, number six, how did Gideon handle his liberty? Notice in verse 28. It says, thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubal, the son of Joash, that's Gideon, that's his other name, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. So he has another little fling, flare, on the side in another city. Shechem was not his hometown. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abizarites. And so now Gideon comes to a point where the Midianites have been subdued. His rule as the judge or deliverer of Israel has been established. And now it's time for him to go on and live the rest of his life in that position. And we see then how he handled it. We see that he multiplied wives to himself that he had at least one concubine in another city of Shechem, and that he lived basically to indulge and please himself. Now, some will say, they'll look at this and they'll say, well, this isn't really a big deal. Because it was common in those days, especially for rulers, to have a multiplicity of wives. And this isn't really that big of a deal. No, it really is. And here's why. Because God forbade it. God said that when there's a ruler of your people, that he is not to multiply for himself wives and horses. Well, here we see Gideon. It says that he had many wives. It doesn't even tell us how many it is. And then we see the outcome of what that behavior did. Notice with me as we close in verse 33. It says, so it was as soon as Gideon was dead. So it doesn't even take time. I mean, his kids are all still alive. It says that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal beareth their God, lowercase g. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubal, Gideon, in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. Not even his kids succeeded him in following after the Lord and pursuing the things of God. The example that Gideon gave after the deliverance from the Midianite was so poor that not one of his sons pursued the things of God and the nation goes into a tailspin immediately upon his death. Now, last week, I said to you that there was a fourth point in our Bible study. 
Last week, our Bible study was about freedom, about how God sets people free. And I told you that chapter 8 was the fourth point in that study. And I told you then that that point was that freedom, freedom for us that comes from God, must be bound to God. That the freedom that God gives his people is not a freedom that can act independently or operate independently of him, but it must be clung to or bound to him. Now, I didn't forget that point. I'm giving it to you right now. Phillips Brooks, that uh, English clergyman from about 100 years ago, said this. He said, no man in this world attains to freedom from any slavery except by entrance into some higher servitude There is no such thing as an entirely free man. In other words, if you're set free from slavery, the only way that can happen is if you become a slave to something higher than what you were a slave to before. There's no such thing as total freedom. The Apostle Paul says that, in other words, in Romans chapter 6. In verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey... You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and being set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members or body parts as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more unlawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't even think about wanting to be righteous when you were slaves of sin. But he says, verse 21, But what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and to the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If a man or a woman is set free from sin when they get saved and they come into a relationship with God, and yet in their heart they are not under God's authority, then that person is going to self-destruct. If God sets you free from sin and he immediately, without first drawing you to himself and teaching you his shepherding hand, and he gives to you, let's just say, financial freedom, He blesses you with an abundance of fortunes and you just have money that you can spend until you go to heaven and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, if that financial freedom that you've been given isn't under God's submission, you're going to use that financial freedom to self-destruct. You're going to fill yourself and become a vacuum of covetousness and vices because that freedom has not been tempered. You haven't been taught how to properly handle it and execute it. Let's just say you have freedom of time. God sets your schedule completely free and you can do whatever you want. Well, if you don't have your freedom of time in subjection to the authority of God and his word, then that free time you have is going to get you into a whole bunch of trouble. That saying is still true that idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's workshop. 
Now, if you let's say you take and put those two things together, you have freedom of time and you have freedom of money. So now you have as much time as you want and you have as much money as you want. Isn't it interesting that oftentimes those two things never happen? You either have money and no time or you have time and no money. But God is too merciful to most of us to give us time and money at the same time. He doesn't do it until we're too old to get ourselves into trouble with the money that we have to ruin ourselves with now the free time that we have, you know. But let's just say for a minute that you have that. You have free time and you have free money, but you're not in submission and subjection to God. You haven't become a slave to righteousness. You're going to be a tailspin. You're going to destroy your very life. No matter how disciplined you are, at some point, Satan is going to get you. Because though the spirit may be willing, the flesh is ultimately weak. Let's just say you have freedom of mind. How many people in here ever feel like you have a cloud or a cloudy day going on up in here? I know I do frequently, you know. And sometimes I just say, God, just clear my mind. Help me to think clearly. I see all these fuzzy visions of what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to do it or how I could make things better for myself. But it just seems like there's a block, there's a shackle, a chain. Lord, free my mind. Well, let's say that the Lord just freed your mind and you could think with absolute clarity the best way you possibly could. You would get yourself into trouble because you would use that for yourself. You'd use it to manipulate and get yourself into a position or to get yourself more money or get yourself more time. And that's good if you're in submission, subjection to God. But if you're not, you're going to use that to self-destruct. No matter what it is that you're bound by or what holds you down or you think this is a chain in my life or some area where I need to be set free, the reason why you're not set free is because that area of your life is not in submission, in subjection to the will and to the word of God. Freedom that is not bound to God has more potential to harm you than the bondage that you were previously in. Booker T. Washington wrote this in his book, Up From Slavery, which describes the scenes among the blacks on the night of the the Emancipation Proclamation. Listen to what he writes. It's profound. He says, There was no sleep that night. All excitement, or all was excitement and expectancy. Early in the morning, we were all sent for The proclamation was read and we were told that we were free and could go when and where we pleased. There was great rejoicing followed by wild scenes of ecstasy. But the wild rejoicing did not last long. By the time the people had returned to their cabins, there was a marked change in their feelings. The great responsibility of being free seemed to take possession of them. It was very much like suddenly turning a youth of 10 or 12 out into the world to provide for himself. Within a few minutes, the wild rejoicing ceased, and a feeling of deep gloom seemed to pervade the slave quarters. Now that they were liberated, they found possession of a freedom to be much more serious business than they had anticipated. That's a profound statement that carries a lot of truth. Here's the point. The point is that when you're saved and set free from the law of sin and death, Meaning that Jesus Christ gets a hold of your life and you're born again. The lights are turned on. Truth becomes real in your life and you're free from death. You've been given eternal life. The lights are on. You're going to heaven. You've been freed in that one sense. But yet you still feel like you're shackled in a lot of ways. Not every addiction just drops off and goes away. 
the, 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 the habits, the, the ways that have corrupted and corroded your character, those things are still very real and very much a part of you. And you feel that, yes, I've been saved from sin, set free. But yet at the same time, I still feel very shackled, very much held, bound. Jesus said this in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. He said, if you continue in my word, or if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He says, if you're my disciples, the mark of that is that you're going to continue in my word. You're going to be a Bible person. You're going to read it. You're going to digest it, absorb it, put it in as much as you can. And you're going to follow me and know me. And the outcome of that is that I will make you free. In other words, it's going to be a process. It's not going to happen on the first day or on the first night. But you're going to find that as you learn of me and as you trust me and as you yield more and more areas of your life to me, you're going to find freedom taking place within you. The shackles and chains of old things are going to break off as you learn to walk in submission to me. And in that, you're going to find great joy and you're going to feel true liberation. But it's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. Now, what that does is this. It makes sense of our trials. Why do we go through the things that we go through? Why is there pain and difficulty? Why is there confusion or conflict or things that happen to us that we don't understand? And we say, God, if if you're at work in my life and you say you want to bless me, then why am I feeling this way? Or why am I experiencing these things? Or why the trouble or the confusion? What's the story with all of that? The answer is God's setting you free. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Or you could just look up at the screen, but I always suggest that you turn there. The Apostle Paul says this. Now listen carefully. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's forgiveness of sins. That's freedom from death. You've been set free. He says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Those two things are a given. The moment you get saved... You have peace with God, and you have access to His grace. You can come to God as His son or daughter anytime, at any hour, for any reason, with boldness. You're accepted before Him. Those things are given automatic the moment you're saved. However, he goes on to say in verse 3, he says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. That's trouble, trials. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance... That's patience. And perseverance produces, listen, character. Do you see that? In other words, our trials are working something in us, and the outcome of that working is character. We're being changed, transformed. We're morphing from what we once were when we were lost in sins to something that more closely reflects the image and likeness of Christ. And the process by which that happens is the troubles and tribulations that we face. It doesn't end there. He says it produces character, and character produces hope. Do you know what hope is? Hope is another word for patience, but it's patience with expectation. When you hope for something, you're still waiting for it. You haven't received it yet. But if there's hope, then you have absolute expectation that the coming is going to be good. Do you get it? That's hope. It's patience with expectation. 
So character is being developed in you through your troubles and your trials. And when you begin to realize what God is doing in your life, it produces hope. He's going to do something good, and he is, in fact, doing something good right now through these troubles that I am experiencing. What's the outcome? James chapter 1, verse 2. Listen to James. Look at the screen. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time a trial came across your life and you said, Yes! This is just the thing I want right now. You say, that's actually exactly what I said with that exact tone, sarcasm, you know. This is exactly what I need right now. No, no, no. That's what James is saying. He's saying, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Do you hear that? Your trials, tribulations, struggles, depressions, necessities, sicknesses, family problems, all of those things are producing perfection in you. As God uses those things to transform your character, to draw you closer to himself, to the end that your character might be what he calls perfected, completed. The finished work that he designed you to be. Now, what we see in Gideon is that he did go through none of that. He didn't have any of it. He had no trials. He had no testing. And the result of it was that when it was time for him to rule, there was a flawed character and a failed leader. There was absolutely no lasting fruit from Gideon's life. And that's the reason why. Without trials, it's impossible to have lasting fruit. Because the character of Christ is never formed and we're never brought into subjection to him. We're free, but we're not free as slaves of God. We become free moral agents of ourselves and we self-destruct and there's no lasting fruit within our lives. We see that throughout the scripture. It happened to Gideon. It's going to happen to Samson in a few chapters. It happened to King Saul. And it happened to King Solomon. A lack of trials resulted in flawed characters equals failed fruit. Their outcome wasn't well. They didn't finish good. No matter what you're going through here tonight, no matter what it is, and every single one of us is going through stuff. Not one of us isn't. No matter what it is that you're going through, God is using that in your life right now to produce the kind of character you need so that when it's time for him to put you where he's made you to be, you don't fail or falter. Your character is complete, and it's lacking absolutely nothing. Our freedom must be found in submission to God, and he's committed to bringing us there. Jesus said, John eight thirty six, whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. And Philippians 1, 6 says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to do it, and he's using the things that we're going through to bring us there. There are no great men born into the kingdom of God. Just babies. You must be born again, the Bible says. But from that point, God begins to form and forge into our lives those things that make us more like him. We become empty of self. We become filled with Christ, with his spirit. And we become a blessing to the world and those around us. Amen?
Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God. Thank you for these examples. You told us clearly, Lord, that these things were written for our admonition, for our example, upon whom the ends of the world have come. And so take the example of Gideon's life and ministry in all of it, his calling, his battling, and then his leading. And give us wisdom and insight into what you're doing in our lives now. Lord, I know that many came in here tonight asking the question, why? Why am I going through this? Why am I feeling this pain? Why is there this stress and this difficulty in my life? Lord, perhaps tonight your spirit gave us an answer. That our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And we know that as a father, you're so faithful to finish what you've begun that you're going to bring us to completion. And so may we trust you tonight. May we in greater measure tonight yield those areas of our lives that we're holding on to. Those areas that if we truly were set free the way we want, we would probably, honestly, we would ruin things. But may we, Lord, come into a loving trust as sons and daughters of you, that you might have full and complete reign in our lives and that we might find ourselves truly free. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.